Welcome to the Heart of Soul podcast, an exploration of who you are, what you are, and why you are, offering new ways to investigate age-old questions at the heart of you. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for listening to the Heart of Soul podcast. What if everything were real, and some things were just realer than others? How would that orientation change how you move through life? That's the realization du jour in this series. We look at the opposite point of view, absolutism, which has been previously discussed, in Eastern Dharma and Western religion, and arrive at how there is no black and white, only many, many shades of gray. Woven through this episode is also the theme of relationality and how absolutism collapses relational space, which will likely continue in the next episode. Thanks so much for listening. Greetings and welcome forward, everybody. Welcome, Stace. Hello. Greetings. Greetings. So we've got a um, big, possibly one of the biggest metaphysical principle to speak about today, and that is realization number whatever it is. Um, on the informal list. Well, maybe one day this will become some kind of official thing, but it surely isn't yet. <laughs> yes. Um, it is number 12, boom, in, in like echo effect, 12, 12, 12, that everything is real and some things are realer than others, which is, uh, it's the metaphysics behind the and, you could say. Yes, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Where should we start with that? Well, we start with the fact that Virtually every traditional and modern um, psycho-spiritual paradigm of change uh, is segmented that creates an either-or uh, dynamic throughout the paradigm. Uh, this truth is non-negotiable, like in Zen Buddhism, the self is an illusion. That, that is a non-negotiable absolute. And anytime, as, as, as an example, anytime there's a, an absolute, you've got the ultimate either or. Mm -hmm. This is true, the other is false. And Just this comes. Really, I mean, we can't, we have, must mention in every opportunity we have, it's a pretty yes. absolute statement for a non dual <laughs> paradigm. <laughs> it's the ultimate absolute <laughs> position for a non positional <laughs> paradigm. I, I brought that once to, I forget who it was. Uh, uh, an enlightened teacher and uh, uh, it was very similar to what you just said and 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 this person said well um, what does that cause your mind to do and I say notice a glaring dualistic contradiction <laughs> to your paradigm and he said great see look it messed with your mind oh god yeah the, now if listeners can get even a fraction of the significance of that answer mm -hmm. relative to this issue. It's uh, it would be helpful to really get clear about the difference between identity and other psycho, psycho spiritual teachings, traditional and modern. Yeah, and I've heard Ajashanti say something about that. He said um, one of the difficulties people have in listening to non dual teachers is they don't get that if like they experience contradictions in the what the teacher says for example they're not discerning between metaphysical teachings and the strategy the teacher is using to get you to see something uh -huh. and which is fair and reasonable yeah that's fair uh -huh. yeah. but the thing is like in identity land speaking as someone who sometimes tries to speak from it 
<laughs> we wouldn't say something that goes completely against something else no, as no. a strategy to get you to see no. something. There has to be a coherence there. Yes. So if you have to say something that isn't true in order to wake somebody up to something, right. there's a problem with the method that's incoherent. We, we wouldn't uh, like that. But in Zenland, yeah, yeah. who who cares, right? That's, yeah, who cares? But you know, there's even even another dimension to that that under, undermines even what Adya reasonably said for that domain. Mm -hmm. uh, the the domain of expression or strategy, the non-dual teacher might contradict themselves in order to get a point across. That's content. What we're talking about here of the self is an illusion non-negotiable absolute is is the ultimate context yeah. of the paradigm so what he says applies to the content the downline expressions but but that's not addressing the metaphysical assumption of a teaching that offer doesn't offer absolutely stands for a non-dual per um, a, a teaching dynamic that absolutely contradicts its itself in the very dualistic, the worst kind of dualistic absolute. Especially, no or. Yeah, especially right. given that the, I mean, at least the way we look at it, and I, I think um, a lot of pure Zen teachings would agree that the experience that you can't experience yourself uh -huh. is what precipitates enlightenment. So yes. if that's the case, then why do you need to hold it as absolute truth? Why wouldn't you leave it to people having the experience? Why would you try to rob them of that? I think I, that's the perfect question, of course, because then you'd have a little more defensibility and, and spacious uh, warmth uh, uh, to your offering. But, but then you couldn't call the teaching itself uh, the end game of all end games. See, yeah. so it's it's a real problem, and this is what happens uh, when there are uh, contextual, metaphysical contradictions. One contradiction begets another, begets another, begets another. Even the justifications become contradictory. Yeah. So it's um it's it's an error that is um, would not be noticeable in Zen because it's too philosophical a point. <laughs> and that sells itself as a total experiential, but doesn't do what you just suggested. Don't just say, see if this works for you. It doesn't say that. It says, this is the way it is. And, and the teacher is always right about this. And the student is always wrong about this. That was another which, which way. they wouldn't say, right? But there's another dualism. And if you want to experience this for yourself, listeners, go to the Zen teacher visiting a town near you. And notice mm -hmm. they will have lots to say about the nature of reality, the nature of self or not self, the nature of whatever, which will all be philosophically and metaphysically grounded until you ask a question that they uh, can't answer or would reveal a contradiction. And then suddenly it's your mind that is in the way. Why yes. do you need to know? <laughs> what Joseph just described, I have seen too many times to count. And it's never noticed by the teacher and virtually never noticed by their adoring fans. Mm -hmm. So we, we don't want to just assert the opposite of, of this, that it's not an absolute. Um, but we can say that anything that is absolute, whether it's in a Zen Eastern tradition, any truth at all that's an absolute uh, is already, we would already say, 
even though we unpack it differently in East and West uh, paradigms, um, is already impossible that no human being is ever capable of any absolute truth. Only Zeno's paradox of approximation. Uh, mm -hmm. That's all we can ever do. And so if one is in tune all the way with that, you would never make such an either or statement, uh, any absolute non-negotiable statement. We offer very strong universal truths uh, in identity, but we don't hold them as absolute truths, only universal truth. And there's an important piece of, about this that I've been reflecting on in the last few days about the relationality, how that connects to relationality, that oh, the grip on uh, a position is inherently non-relational. Uh, yes. But we're taught like, well, you have to stand for something and you have to know what your values are and what your opinions are. And then you, you know, debate with other people. Well, what I'm realizing is there's an inherent non-relationality in that. And I yeah. heard in my head yesterday, the, um, the, it's the uh, title of the uh, revision of one of your old books, which is um, going to be, we feel therefore we are, is that the new title? Yes. Uh -huh. And like, I got that in an experiential way. Like I saw a grip I had on an idea, like suddenly there was some space between me and that position in relationship with another person. And mm -hmm. suddenly it was like, oh, that grip is, I'm putting my opinion above the relationship. Yes. And mm -hmm. that automatically undermines something. And like, as opposed to what if I put the relating, the feeling of relating first and then arrived at what I thought after that. Yeah. Wow. Great. I don't great, think I can do that yet <laughs> with any kind of regularity, but I sure want to. Uh, and that fits with the Zen sort of what's arising, what's the truth that's arising in the moment. It's like we, we have a personal way of what's the truth that's arising in the relatedness between two people. Yes. I love that you mentioned this because um, a thing that Zen teachers, enlightened teachers don't, I've never heard it brought into the space, but um, people should hear before they invest 30 years in a drafty monastery avoiding thoughts of sex. Um, <laughs> that, uh, especially uh, those thoughts. Especially that without a real eye, two eyes that are unreal cannot transact relationally. Yeah. When that means what uh, what it, what what it would be even more incisively honest by a Zen master would be, hey everyone, before you get into this, you know, and uh, I, we we will talk uh, uh, koanically for the next twenty years. Um, I want you to know that that if you enlighten, then there is no such thing as real relationality because there's no such thing as two real eyes. Right. It's just and, two different faces, arbitrary faces on the same mystery or something. Exactly. And I love Adya. Would, I've heard him a couple of times tangentially refer to this mystery uh, of how he and, um, oh, I always forget her name. Uh, uh, that His he, wife, his, Mukti? Yeah. Mukti. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, they, they do use that word a lot in their description of related relational ground. Mm -hmm. um, but to say it really clearly for everyone to hear uh, clearly that there is all relationality becomes moot after enlightenment 
technically. Oh, well, I got a direct quote for you from Aja for your consideration. Okay. I, okay. He told a story, um, and for comment, uh, he told the story of when um, Mukti woke up, the first thing he said that she said to him was, I don't need you anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, and a lot of people would be like afraid or hurt by that, but he just smiled and said, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. So how would you unpack that? Oh, that's a beautiful, that's a tricky one. Uh, mm -hmm. It's got a couple different layers to it because yeah. she could be saying in some obtuse way that wasn't conscious, uh, our, our codependence is over. Mm -hmm. um, that's one level, that's in content. Mm -hmm. But in context, uh, I don't need you anymore because I am not here anymore. <laughs> if there's no I, there can be no personal need. <laughs> right, mm -hmm. which is why Adya would respond beautifully with, I know exactly what you mean. Mm -hmm. uh, there is some arising something, somethingness between two enlightened uh, uh, beings, mm -hmm. but it's not I-mediated. And, and since the I is an illusion of arising um, uh, uh, mental... Uh, lamination to experience, um, then in, in all in most teachings, Ajis is a little softer on that about soulfulness and stuff. But yeah. um, still, uh, <laughs> to know that you're going when you get enlightened, you're obliterating all sense of of substantive relationality, because the author of the dyad in any relational space, they're both obliterated uh, into nothing, no thingness. So a lot of people, if they heard that, in my opinion, if they heard that up front, honestly, might 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 seek um, uh, uh, Scientology or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's, uh, you know what just hit me that I haven't considered before is that in in Zen they don't consider the possibility that it's possible to test out denying the self that deeply in such yeah. a way that it would really work. Yes, that's right. Because of their basic uh, assumptions, uh, uh, the, the paradigmatic assumptions would not give them a, a, a way to do that, to actually investigate the truth of the sobriety of that. Well, because and they couldn't even own that there's a paradigmatic assumption because they think no. they've completely transcended their minds, so they're not inside any paradigmatic assumption. But the very right. fact that they think they could do that is a paradigmatic assumption. Yes. Oh, my God, it's so crazy-making. <laughs> you see, and, and this is why uh, when, I, when I gestalted, I, I've, I've had to unpack these sub-dimensions, you know, over the years. But I had a gestaltic reality of, of the totality of that crazy making um, twisted kind of self um, uh, self uh, not self evaluation project mm -hmm. that they do they do in Dharma talks and and it, it there's there, it, it is it is an ellipse or it's a moibus strip more <laughs> moibus strip uh, inside of a moibus strip yeah and so and and you know what they would as a former Zen master myself, I would say, now you're getting it. Now oh, you're God. getting it. Moibus strip inside <laughs> of a Moibus strip. You see, they would be uh, the, the Zen way or or a quasi Zen way would be to completely acknowledge the challenge. Now you're getting it with no deep debrief or decoding of what they just meant. Yeah, with like a celebration of like, look, you dead ended your mind. Yes savor that and watch yes. it fail to make sense of reality and then just lift up off of your bottom three chakras and join the rest of us. Exactly right. Ugh.
now, on point to our topic today about some all things are real and some things are more real than others, this is an important segue um, we can make right here about Eastern, the most um, no, no thingness based Eastern traditions. And that is that um, as soon as you aver or avow an absolute, only one thing is real, the, the thing that you avow. There is no, no negotiability to its dualistic opposite or even, even a minor gradation of um, an undermining of that. And so the, the only real is the absolute. And so they, there's no way that um, a, a, an Eastern tradition along these lines would ever say all things are real and other things are more real than others. They would say only one thing is real and that it is that you are not real. Uh, and so in that way, it's yeah, a it really bothers me when they refer to duality as a dream. Yes. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah. A dream, That's which is, which allows another subsect, not Zen, but another bleary um, hybrid of Hindu uh, Zen, yeah. Hindu Buddhism hybrid to say that we, we dream up the whole uh, 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 universe ourselves. Uh, which is um, a Moebius strip inside of a Moebius strip inside of a Moebius strip. You just yeah. add another Moebius strip. It's, it's existential level transcendence because as long as if everything is a dream or yeah. an illusion, but dream somehow has a different connotation to yeah. it. It's like yeah, yeah. you wouldn't suffer over the dream if you could just realize that you were dreaming. Yes. I actually yeah. heard Adjo once talking about, I don't think he meant it quite this way, but it was implicit in it. He was trying to talk about enlightenment. He was saying, um, how do you, how how to get through to a non enlightened person what it is, and he started the talk with suppose you were in someone's dream and you wanted to get through to them that they were dreaming, what would you say? Oh, Which that's a, it was totally I brilliant. It led to yeah, a really interesting that. conversation where people would say things, but yeah. but that 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 idea it does implicitly offer that there's this yeah. dreaminess and he, he yeah. observably lives in that place he doesn't get too excited about anything anymore yeah right. uh, and then it's like well to, to relate to everything as a dream well that sure takes the edge off the suffering that's like having a couple drinks in you all the time all the time <laughs> which is why it's escapist mm -hmm. that metaphor is not uh, pejorative that you just used it's actually really applicable and you become rich and famous in this tipsy uh, consciousness state no criticism just an offering to decode what is offered in the in the zen tradition in this example in another with another light of illumination and then it is real and it doesn't include enough of the personal, which we would say is realer. <laughs> well, that, absolutely. Let, let's build our way to that place. Okay. Um, um, so by contrast, we have to show something by contrast because it's very clear. Non-negotiable absolutism is, different, is the worst kind of dualistic dynamical bandwidth there is. And if you make the, the opposite or even a gradation of the opposite room, you would give it room for it, you, you're not talking absolutely, you're talking universally for conjecture, right? But, in, but by counter illumination, now let's, that's, a, that's it, we just articulated the Zen uh, absolutism there perfectly and some of its ramifications. Mm -hmm. But here, not, now take a taste of identities, uh, take a little uh, uh, not drink from the not glass <laughs> and the, uh, uh, of, of identity in this sage domain that um, we would say that 
the mind eye is real, mm -hmm. but the soul eye is more real. Mm, nice. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, in that sense, Zen would look at that and say, there is only the mind eye. And when it's properly transcended through various sundries and means, um, the revelation you you the not revelation you don't have uh, <laughs> as you <laughs> as you reveals to the you that's not that you're not okay so it's a uh, it becomes really uh, uh, interesting well they, they have like a, a non-dual not I versus mind I yeah it's an either or yes it's either and we or. have soul I and mind I and the soul I is realer and we've even got another dimension to it that the mind eye is real, but a hell of a lot less real than the soul eye. The soul eye is much more expansive and unilistic as opposed to dualistic as a gradation um, and, and uh, more real ep uh, um, uh, uh, epistemolo epistemologically and ontologically is that pre-dual is more real than soul eye Mm -hmm. Stay with me. Mm -hmm. But pre-duality, or what we call non-duality, is less real than the universal presence of divine love. Now, in identity, we can't by by orienting to everything is real, but some things are more real than others. It's not a it's not a sleight of hand philosophical trick to get the, those four dimensions of consciousness to be compatible yeah it's actually the other way around when you when you process existential terror of not being existential terror of 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 uh, being and existential terror of non-being all three in our three dharmas that becomes of self-validatingly um a, a, a offering of the structure of human of consciousness i think of like if there's someone who's knee deep in the ocean and there's someone who's shoulder deep in the ocean, mm -hmm. in one way they're both in the ocean. Yes. But one Such of them's one of them's in more. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now that's not so hard. That, I never thought of that. That's a beautiful, perfect yeah. symbol. Someone who's ankle deep in the ocean could be like, I am in the ocean. If they've never been yeah. in the ocean, like, well, you have no idea how yeah. deep it goes. And so yeah. you, you they're like, No, 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 I'm in the ocean. And right. then the person who's treading water a hundred feet away is like, yeah, you're only just beginning. There's more, yes, and there's more ocean to that. And if you're, if you, you've, uh, divin, uh, if you're diving 100 meters down on a free dive, mm -hmm. you're even more in the ocean, more deeply in the ocean. So this is not um, a, a clever little trick we have to make something be true. This is absolute, this has a really clear um, uh, uh, metaphorical examples to get the taste of it. And that, that, but we say that, well, ankle deep, I'm in the ocean, shoulder deep, uh, you're more in the ocean. And on a free dive, you're more and more in the ocean. That those are fractals of the very epistemologically ontological truth of consciousness. It's, it's step, it's seamless, but has zones. Mm -hmm. These zones, and another way to say this is that everything is real, some things are more real than others is there are dimensional bandwidths, but these dimensional bandwidths are not segmented that this exists such that that doesn't exist. They yeah. all exist simultaneously. 
So when we say, let's, let's just unpack that those four there relative to the Zen path, then we can go to other paradigms too. Mm-hmm. And, and that is that the, the mind eye is real in the sense it co-arises mutually with the objects and dynamisms of our experience. We, identity would completely agree with Zen that way. The mind eye arises only in conjunction of mutual co-arising experience with experience. That's 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 fine, but that denies in Zen, of course, uh, there's no soul eye um, because that would just contradict the illusionalness of the mind eye because it's only secondarily created, no primary eye in the mind, secondarily created as a as a uh, the effluvia of having experience, right? Uh, so. Next step up is uh, the soul eye, which is far more expansive. Not it's not it's not non-dualistic and it's not dualistic. It's in between unilistic, where there are edges in the soul domains of consciousness. You'll you'll remember this after you die. Uh, enlightened masters must forget what happens between lifetimes uh, that they don't remember this. Um, and so and so uh, the soul eye is is not non-dual and it's not dual so we'll just use a little you know, a clever yeah, thing that's say, a whole realm no. of frequency of consciousness that zen doesn't uh, account for mm. at all no and so all the all the things that happen in hospitals that have been documented over and over and tried to be explained away by empiricists where people can rise above and see and hear what's going on in the operating room while, while they're completely out or after they died this is all just not even addressed in Zen uh, because Zen was invented so many thousands years ago. There was no surgical theater <laughs> in those kinds Probably of Probably not uh, a lot of resusc- resuscitation either. <laughs> no, no. If you had art, if there was no CPR, I don't imagine, or not, not very right. much. So what I'd like to do is come backwards through that sequence to make the point we can move on here. Okay. Identity offers that you can self-validate this that the source of everything is divine love presence love presence of the divine apart a little less a little a, another aspect downstream less real than that primary real is the womb space of the divine yin and that is uh the space like it, 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 a woman has in the uterus there's a capacitus space there that, uh, that the child uh, once inseminated uh, and, and embeds in the lining of the uterus has room to expand that embedment into the empty space of the uterus. Same principle here. All of our souls, the birth of our souls came out of the pre-dual, non-dual of the divine yin. And that not pre-dual, non-dual is structurally um, clinging to our soul roots such that when we re-access it, when we access it, bango, bango, there's there's the non-dual teachings. That the whole non-dual teachings of the East are simply the, the moments before our soul eye was born cling to our soul eye roots. And it's a, a beautiful thing that wasn't engineered to be that way by divine being. It just sort of unfolded that way. And so, and staying with our thing here, divine presence of love, that we're all made of love, is the primary essence. Then a little less real is the non-dual space that we carry along with us just moments prior before our soul eye was born. Now, the next less real thing is, um, uh, 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 the next level is a universality, uh, how can I say this? Um, 
oh i've got to i've got to go back pre the pre mental selfhood allness place that children live in the euroboros U- yes. mm-hmm. exactly the euroboros thank you mm-hmm. exactly right um better than what i was going to say thanks and that's pre dualistically shaped consciousness that comes out later as the mind uh, 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 matures all those four zones are real but they have an algorithmic um, uh, uh, segmentation without boundaries that it one one segues into the other um, uh, uh, from most essential to uh, mid-essential to expression. They're ontologically prior. Ontologically prior, philosophically, thank Mm -hmm. you. So that's that's a pretty esoteric place to start, but if we can make that most severe, uh, there is no such thing as the I, non-negotiable. If we can find a (laughs) segwayable, if I can say it that way. That's a good word, segwayable. A segwayable ontological priorness algorithm to the states and stages of different uh, levels of consciousness, we can include God and the non-dual in one sweet period. And that's why this is maybe a leap for some people, but this fills in the relationality and relationship to truth thing. Because if the love between you and another person is a downstream expression of some of those ontologically prior frequencies, yes. then that's realer yes. than an individual mind-eye-based position. Which is always a smaller contraction Did you of see that, that relational Did you see space. That thumbs up that just appeared? Uh, I, yeah. I didn't. No, because your thumb was sticking up above the plane of the camera. But it was I up. Really? No, yeah. you didn't. No, it was just this. What the hell is that? Do you see that? Yeah, it comes out. It's the new form of Zoom. All you have to do is put a little, a little thumb up there. And if you make a thumb, a thumb yeah. image. Co- yeah, and look, see. Oh, look that's it. ridiculous. Why is that on by default? I can't um, believe that. <laughs> it's a little cartoonish, and it's not very uh, classy for a podcast like this. <laughs> just trying an OK symbol. Like, what else could it do? I tried. I, I can't find anything else. I don't think they programmed anything but a thumbs up. That's absurd. I, I, I gesticulate a lot. So if I do this a lot of times and then oh. I tend to pause, you, you'll get a little thumbs up sign there. You know. But look, now there, it, it didn't do it at all. Why, why not? Yeah. Oh, no, yours, it likes you better than me. <laughs> Sorry for that distraction, uh, listeners, but we're as surprised about it as you are. Yes. Okay, yeah. so in that sense, we just made the case that it, of the possibility that we'd offer you to just chew on that um, the, the some things are real and some all things are real, but some things are more real than other things um, and not things uh, actually. Um, that's applied to the most the strictest form of um, absolutism there is. Uh, contrary let's go to um, Pollyanity or what everybody calls Christianity. Um, the non-negotiable, what's the non-negotiable assertion uh, or a vowel uh, in, um, in, in Pollyanity is uh, that we're all born innately sinful, original sin, right? That's not negotiable in all, all forms of Christianity. It's just yeah. a truth. There's no negotiation. <clears throat> Apparently somebody way back in the day heard God say that, I guess. And if it, they heard God say that, then it must be absolute. 
Um, we yeah, how absolute of, is what <clears throat> someone else's actions somehow impact your morality? It's, I mean, that's really beyond your control. I mean, you're literally a victim of Adam and Eve in that circumstance. It, uh, someone with a his, historical uh, narrative background or his, you know, that studies history knows very well the cultural trope uh, of the past that children um, must pay for the sins of the father. Mm-hmm. Right? That's all that came out of is that that old trope that um, uh, uh, whatever your parents do, the ancestors have got to pay for it, or especially the first generation children. Well, this is absolute nonsense. Uh, can children repeat the mistakes? Yeah, but look, they were observing children getting conditioned by the parents and saying, oh, uh, the, the, the parents' uh, uh, sins must be pay- are also present in the kids. Well, that's just conditioning and, and not, not something. Uh, right, it's pre-psychological. Is that uh, yeah, pre-psychological. The, all, all religions, including Zen, which yeah. is not a religion, are, are pre-psychological, right? Yeah. So, so they're all suspect and uh, of, their, of their intellectual and metaphysical sobriety. And identity has spent years and years decoding those to offer people who are really analytical and ontologically adept so that we can get down all the way, not just make statements while identity is, is something different than anything else. Here's why it's different. We, we really want to break it down for everyone to examine and test. So in that sense, uh, like Joseph just said, I would be convinced, I'd be convincible that... Um, the sins of quote unquote Adam and Eve um, uh, uh, brand me with a, some a sin that I didn't create, but I have to pay for. If I could see that uh, J- Joseph um, um, uh, uh, stepping on a scorpion in a moment that he wish he didn't step on it because they're beautiful creatures. Um, yeah. Sure. Uh, uh, if he accidentally stepped on one and went, oh, shit, oh, I, I really was unmindful that moment. I, I, I didn't mean to kill you. That, that moment, um, uh, if him stepping on that scorpion is a not good thing, if all of a sudden it transferred to me that I I stepped on the scorpion. Yeah, and it's, that not, I it's not experienceable, guilty. right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> If that were true, I could buy original sin. I, right, but if uh, I but, gave you a hundred dollars, uh-huh. and you then had the purchasing power of that hundred dollars, that's experienceable. Like you can, yeah. I can't yeah. buy anything anymore. You've got the hundred bucks now. You that's like you'd have to be able to experience it like that. Exactly. So if there were exam an example where someone else's vicissitude, I inherit. <laughs> That's, that's over in Korea, just above the 36th or 38th parallel, whatever that is. Uh, I'd buy, uh, um, really, I could rationalize. And well, original. they would say, no, it's special. It's a special circumstance because Jesus was the son of God and he died for your sins. And no one else can take on that kind of responsibility in that way, right? Yeah, that, another non-negotiable No, situation. no, but wait a minute. No, that's different. I was thinking, I yeah, was conflating Adam and Eve were normal people, allegedly. Yes. So yeah, their people. immorality we did inherit, and they, I guess, because they were first and because we're all yeah. descendants of them. But in, in that, then in that case, then the people who descend below us, they inherit the sins of the parents, which was a crude way of understanding that they inherited your screwed up conditioning. 
<laughs> screwed up conditioning on the uh, uh, experiential level and genetics sure. or a, a deeper level we pass those on well why not original sin i mean i you know right so it was pre-scientific as well because we do inherit yeah i mean as like like i've said before i i never wanted to subscribe now i know why that we inherit any kind of um personality traits from our parents um yeah, but when mm -hmm. I found out that my father was not my father and learned about the kind of guy that my biological father was, it turned out I was a lot like him. So, yes. yeah, we do inherit that. So prior to an understanding of genetics and prior to an understanding of emotional conditioning, an inherited morality was a reasonable model to make up. Sure. Now, can we get rid of it? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Let's expand that just a tad. What you, that, can we get rid of it now? Um, Look, it's reasonable and exactly what Joseph just said. But so if that floats your meta existential boat, stick with it. Um, but note and remember that all of our religions, all the axial age religions were from the axial age, which was pre-psychological, pre-philosophical, really, um, in, in, in some ways, not, not always. Uh, the Greeks were a little ahead of this, uh, the curve. But, but, but most still, of the axial age was the Middle Ages. Dark middle, age, yeah. yeah. Well, so in that sense, um, what, what we would say is the non-negotiable truth is the only truth. There's an absolute truth. We're all born with original sin. Uh, Judaism also holds it uh, that way. Uh, Pollyanity inherited from Judaism that way. They agree on that. Islam, interestingly enough, doesn't articulate original sin uh, or attached to it, even though Judaism and Pauli and Christianity are, are, are converge or come come out of Abraham, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's not original sin uh, flag uh, so it's much. It's just like the, the pride in, in humans is just part of like the human condition. I've never seen any uh, any teaching about why it's there. Yeah, you're just you, stubborn and need to surrender, and that's just how it is for you. Oh, exactly what exactly what I would say too. I did a cursory of the Quran, a Cliff Notes version of the Quran once, really looking for original sin and couldn't find it. It's so devoid of metaphysics. It's it's the, the rankings goes Christianity has the most metaphysics, then Judaism, and then Islam. It's like completely yeah. bereft of anything. It's just stuff. Yes, well, I love that stuff. You, you're if you don't if you're not in total surrender of Allah, uh, that's the sin. Yeah, that's Allah is great. Sin. There's yeah. only Him. What's your problem? You you right. suck. Bow down to Him. <laughs> yes. Said again and again and again in different ways. That's the Quran. Now, now, how uh, non-surrender to Allah turns into a hajib? Uh, I don't know how that happened. A hajj. The hajib's the thing you hajj. wear. <laughs> that, yes. That too. I, that's what oh, I meant. you meant that. Okay. I meant that the hajib. You know, how does that come out of non How does that come out of surrender to Allah, except for some very culturally saturated positions about sexuality and the and the and the, uh, the effect that uh, the feminine has on the masculine? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, poor, poor dears, and I guess Arab men or Muslim men are so so a uh, victim of, of, of a woman's allurement in the natural body state that it has to be covered so they don't get too excited. Um, Apparently. It's a, it's a, I mean, that's not an unreasonable 
conclusion uh, or opinion about that. But the point here is that anytime there's an, an absolute, that is real and nothing else is real. And so there's no absolutes in identity anywhere, anywhere. Absolutely none. Now <laughs> that, so the only absolute we would say, now someone confronted me with that once a long uh -huh. time. The only absolute that identity holds is that there's no such thing as an absolute. So uh, human beings are incapable of any absolute truth. We can only approximate truth, which is why we said in an earlier podcast, uh, the true scientist never has a position. Yeah, True scientist is always testing hypotheses. Uh, and that form of that kind of science has been lost by the wayside in the mago, uh, maganess of this world uh, in a different domain. Um, so in that sense, when we say everything is real and some things are more real than others, not only is the net result of that to be tested and self-validated by everyone, is that it unifies everything. It unifies psychology with philosophy, philosophy with spirituality, spirituality with ethics, ethics to um, uh, um, uh, behaviorism. Uh, everything gets linked that way ontologically, starting with essence, moving through form and coming down to multiplicity layers of expression. You know, it, it just hit me that like as a species, we've uh, come from um, uh, a, a childlike kind of consciousness related to truth where yeah. it's like yeah people think different things and like that's okay or i mean occasionally there were wars about it but it wasn't like constant position i mean there, there was no diversity like you know in the middle ages you grew up around christians like that's it yeah. it was just there was a right. hom homogeneity uh, there and now it seems to me that we're in a very much a teenage phase of consciousness which is like this yeah. is what i think and yes. fuck you if you think differently. Like we're gonna fight about it. Like and, exactly. Um, and obviously, the next phase would be actual maturity. Um, yeah. But but it, that's what hit me when um, you uh, talked about uh, in both science and philosophy. Both there's the um, position. The position has become more important than the curiosity and the ex the exploration. And it seems to me that used to be when we were in more of a childlike phase of development as a species. There was a fair amount of that. And there would occasionally, just like a bunch of fifth graders, they mostly <laughs> get along fine. There are occasionally fights. Yeah. But the 17-year-olds, they're all factionated and segregated. And, you know, that's who's talking to who. And it's far more stratified. Oh, nicely put. Yeah. Uh, any absolutism is a teenage level uh, orientation of consciousness. Yeah. Because teenage, you, you don't have a child who's a teenager, um, just look at the teenage world. Uh, mm -hmm. They're all, the only their way that they're testing out, they're hypothesizing about truth. And to start that whole journey, they've really got to own their truths. They know way better than their, than their parents. That's uh, a very teenage orientation, absolutism. So the absolutism of Zen Buddhism, for example, we would also agree semi-ontologically that um, it's a teenage version of, um, of spirituality or of, uh, of fundamental consciousness theory. We would ca characterize religions as a childhood phase of the species. Eastern, uh, Western religionism, uh, Eastern uh, uh, spirituality uh, or, or um, theories uh, which are not theories in their 
of course, uh, are, are more uh, a teenage version because they have a lot of absolutism, even though there's absolutism in Christianity too. There's softer absolutism. There's their, they're less defined metaphysically. They're a little sloppier. So they're, they're, that's kids. Uh, teenagers have got another whole thing going on. So Zen is very, has a lot of alacrity to it and boom, 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 philosophical sobriety in their own picture of things. But the grown-up, learns that it, the, the answer is not black and white, the, the religion's version of black and white or Eastern spirituality's black, black and white. Everything's gray because situational ethics comes in like the morality of humanism. You know, there's just because you're an atheist or you're an atheistic human, uh, uh, atheistic human doesn't mean that secular humanism doesn't have uh, a semi-sophisticated form of morality and ethics. So, when we talk about real, more real, and most real, um, we're on a gradation. We're in a gray zone that younger soul consciousnesses are just not comfortable with gray. There's no solid ground they can yeah. put their opinion feet on. Yeah. So they, they go, ah, that's blah. Well, uh, well imagine a, a, a seven-year-old being offered um, a teenage calculus course. Or having to make decisions about like which school to go to or what sport <laughs> exactly. to play or, you know, it's like or, or, or or seven year old what or five year old what gender do you want to be oh god yes. i mean i'm sorry i i had i had to bring that in but we make no judgment about lgbtq plus one plus or well, I, plus. I just think if someone doesn't have the uh -huh. uh, right to drive a car or vote they shouldn't uh via critical thinking shouldn't get to decide what gender they are either not in a way yeah. that could have long-lasting effects like taking hormone blockers oh, oh, oh yeah you know in a way that actually is sober um, it's just beyond rationality i can't even speak to that nonsense i just can't i can't know i can't feel how that could possibly arise except in people who don't have critical thinking like yeah and then say. meta to that and what we were talking about before um related to the um the, the premise of this entire podcast which is or this episode which is that everything is real and some things are realer than others just because someone is living according to a paradigm that has some distortion in it, in it doesn't mean that it isn't entirely appropriate for them to be living it. Yes. Because that's oh, what they need to yeah. do to learn. Exactly. There's, there's no elitism in anything we're saying here. And that's what Joseph is saying. Thanks for bringing that in. Uh, I, I tested for about uh, six or seven years the idea that there was no self, like I said before, after learning all of this stuff from you. For some reason, uh -huh. I had to learn it myself, and I had to yep. know self myself as much as I possibly could until I dead-ended yep. that, and yep. um, I needed to do that. Which identity completely supports 1,000%. You have to stick with what you're doing until it dead-ends, which you've got to... The, the kicker in that one is you've got to recognize when you've dead ended. Yeah. And that a lot of people don't. They just stay spin on the spinning wheel, and uh, they don't realize they've dead ended. Yeah. So, yeah, but let's take another domain about this real, real or realist mm -hmm. thing. Uh, uh, relationship is real. But the individuals comprising are more real. In other words, relationality is a is a secondary expression of the most basic dyad of, 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 a, of a self and another in relationality. That whole orientation there is no relationality without the primary reality of the individual. Same principle for collectivism. The group 
is a secondary. Now, if we expand relationality from a dyad to uh, 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 whatever the Greek is for a million, you know, deca, <laughs> uh, deca dyad or whatever, um, all collectivism is downstream or less real than the individuals that comprise it, which is why uh, identity would offer philosophically the unit of all groupings, primary to relationality or all groups of all kinds is the individual, not the group. And we have been conditioned the opposite. In survival modes, we needed the community to survive. So all the needs of the community became more important than the needs of any individual in the community for survival. So here we have a situation where the Huns are coming over the walls and uh, uh, a 20-year-old son of a father, a warrior father says, um, um, oh, uh, no, I, I'd rather sit and weave today rather than uh, get on the ramparts and uh, push away the Huns. Uh, the <laughs> I don't feel like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't feel like it. Well, that's impossible in a survival mode. You don't get to have preferences. So that whole thing came forward and, and turned into a really ugly thing that, that turned the primary good of the group or the collective more real, more truthful, more meaningful than uh, that of the individual. But I just got what the truth was that was being put in service. Go there. ahead. Universal truths are yes. truer than individual truths. Yes, absolutely. But then if those are put in service, it becomes a collectivized truth that is disconnected from the universal truth. Oh, nice. So so you just, re, just put... Um, uh, uh, truth in the re in the thing thing some things are more real than other things some truths are more real than other truths mm -hmm. we would say this the upstream ontological unit of all relationality is the individual mm -hmm. uh, and uh, without that there can be no grouping without the individual so ergo sine qua non uh, quo vadis <laughs> the quo vadis uh, part <laughs> no i was making a joke oh. that was an old movie back from the 60s oh. uh, book because um, I couldn't think of the quote sine qua non. Oh, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Sine qua non means absolutely follows. It must yes, be so. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. I love that one. Thank you. Yeah, me too. I forgot it in my senior moment. That, so we had, we had a cultural troupe which had survival value that carried over to morality. Now we, st we are still arguing today. How do you adjudicate the needs of the uh, the good of the of the collective over the good of the of the individual? In other words, you can look at it both ways. The collective good would be we would have much less industrial waste polluting our world, mm. right? That that's the collective good. But some individuals who profit way out of whack wise with a benefit to those uh, kinds of businesses. They want the individual good to be more important than the collective good. This is a morality that plays out every single day in our current climate uh, situation. Mm -hmm. But it can also go the other way, that um, a, uh, uh, someone who's, let's say they're in Shiva or they're at Shul um, or, or at the Jewish service, let's say on Passover in, in the synagogue, and uh, someone, uh, there's, there's, they're chanting and they're reading from the Torah and everything is all wonderful and good and everybody's connected up. And somebody stands up and says, you know, I think this is a lot of horseshit. 
everything we're doing here. And I have an opinion and I have a right to my opinion. And I and I have the right to disturb the collective zeitgeist of our of our synagogue uh, uh, ritual here. And I want to be heard because my my opinion is just as important as all of yours. Okay. Here's a tricky one because we would say the individual is the ontological author of all relationality. And yet here's the reverse where there's a truth and service that detaches from it. Just like you gave an example of that no disruption uh, when there's another way of doing it, when this person could have every opinion along that why and stand up and say, you know, this isn't working for me and I'm going to write out all my opinions about it and I'm going to nail it to the, to the <laughs> door on my way out. Have at it, uh, brothers and sisters, you know, the same result without the disruption. So the, in, the, the there's a sobriety index that we can measure in, in identity of whether when it is the common good is greater than the individual good. And when the individual good is better than the common good by making the distinction between the protector eye and the soul eye. Ah, See, yes. Mm -hmm. That adjudicates everything. That's the other thing. When we started this, that the soul, we can engineer it a little different. The soul, we made the distinction with the soul eye and the mind eye. But there's another one different, which is the soul eye and the protector eye, the smaller contracted version of the soul eye that had to form to survive by being malnourished of emotive bandwidths in childhood by a parenting that never knew that children need to be felt, not um, uh, a led uh, to uh, through a through and childhood. This resolves the millennial uh, battle between self and other as uh, yes. healthy needs of self versus needs of other are handled by healthy needs of self versus unhealthy needs of self. Exactly, and right, and we've got we've got real metrics to measure those differences that are validatable in experience. Uh, so you can see that the concepts match the experience. So in that sense, um, we have an adjudicatable metric in identity to distinguish between the needs of self and the needs of others and when and where they apply and don't apply. And was why we always say when you've healed your protector eye and reversed its two thirds mastery of your being, and it's now you have the soul eye mastery of the being two thirds, one third, there's no rub between the need of self and the need of others. It's all negotiable, not set in some, some ethical grid work that has to apply to this situation. It's evolved in the verb we call relationality, the river. Uh, it's, yeah. Which is not a problem. Which know? is not how Ayn Rand painted the uh, <laughs> hero of self. It was very much sort of a contentious based, like, this is what I'm doing. And if you don't like it, screw you. You're either with me or against me, sort of thing. Yeah. And, and being an ex Randite myself, uh, I had to wear those clothes for a while before I realized I had to take them off because they were all dirty. Uh, <laughs> I became a Randite, um, uh, Howard Rourke in, in hiding, you know. Um, is that, oh, I, yeah, I did that too. So in, in that sense, um, there, there's no care of impact on other. And, and what we would say that the way to really adjudicate what we've just been talking about fairly esoterically is just be in touch with your impact on someone else. Value the impact on other at first, equally to whatever truth you are that had a negative impact on someone. Just, just start out with that. It, it may turn out that 
the impact on them is 90% created by unhealed wounds in them. It could be that the impact on them is due to 90% of, of unhealed wounds in you uh, or something way in between. And if that's too murky for you, identity has the metrics. Yeah, to, and for uh, someone who wasn't doing EBE, I don't know how they could possibly do that, unfortunately. Uh, no, they can't. So in that sense, in the biggest picture of all, we can uh, summarize our, our topic today, um, that uh, personhood, sagehood, and sainthood Sainthood traditions like the religions of the West posit their way as the way. Uh, uh, sagehood, pre-dual, non-dual based or um, uh, uh, impersonal being, uh, IB, impersonal being that more in the Hindu Advaita uh, zone, not non-dual. They would acknowledge it's non-dual, but they refer impersonal being a little bit more met metaphysically. Um, that's... that's um, Sagehood, they would say they have the final answer to everything. And uh, personhood, uh, which in humanistic circles would say, now that we are finally in a psychological age, we can throw out all this Eastern and Western mysticism or quasi-mysticism um, and the pre-dual, which is non-mystical, actually. A lot of people don't know that. Um, and so uh, personhood, in that sense, is real in our picture, Sagehood is more real and sainthood is most real, which is why we must start in personhood, then move to sagehood, then move to sainthood, hmm. because the, the divine being of identity sainthood is not that of Western religion. And the non-dual of identity is not the, is pre, the pre-dual of identity is not the non-dual of Eastern teaching. And the personhood of identity is not just psychologically, humanistically configured. It's emotively configured. So, and that's, that's what determines when people say, well, why do you need to do that sequence? Because ontologically, personhood is real. The I is real. Just is split into a, 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 a soul. More and less, split into more and less real. Ourselves. More and less real. Yes, exactly. And so that sequence is important. And there's a couple of other reasons why that sequence is offered as ideal. But nobody does the ideal. We're not hard-nosed or hard-assed about it. Um, when you've got, like Joseph does, um, and a lot of us do, uh, a pre, uh, many past lives that have um, uh, uh, non-dual events or sainthood type of allness of, um, uh, events happening, just doing the personhood, as we said in other uh, uh, podcasts, can evoke those movements forward with no meditation, no prayer, nothing. Mm -hmm. So, in that sense, it's gonna there's a there's a sequence of idealism that we try to apply, but we flow flow much more with what's what's the person need. Uh, we often do in personhood. We will hit a, a wall and go, oh, we've got to do some sagehood work with a past life of yours, a parapersona. Maybe we can get a voice of a past life of yours to help adjudicate the stuck place right now. So we're completely flexible that way. So in, in this way, um, really, it look at look at nature. Um, a nucleus of an atom is real. Uh, but the atom itself, is, well, you could argue this both ways, is a little less real. Well, because without a central nucleus, you don't have an atom electromagnetically able to do its thing. So um, right, right from there, then uh, a mole uh, an atom 
is more real than a molecule because a molecule is a group of atoms mm -hmm. uh, that way. And an, a molecule is, is more real than uh, an energetic um, amalgamation that precipitates into matter. Th this is not such a hard concept uh, to really apply to all, all things that everything is real, but some things are more real than others. And the, because matter is actually mostly space, the space that those atoms are in is actually realer yes. than the molecule <laughs> itself, the atoms themselves. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That, I, always, I love that one when I learned that in second year high school. I think that there's, we're basically empty space, our body. There's, there's a, what, a thousand times more empty space than there is matter Something in our like body. That, yeah, it's Something crazy. like that. So in that way, just take in from this podcast that what we're talking about here has the power, if you kind of open up to its exploration, to really um, illuminate what has been missing in other paradigms, both traditional and modern, uh, for what it means to actually be a human being, and not so secondarily, what it means to a, a human being's uh, a need and healthy desire for beauty, bounty, and meaning, which requires change. And you can't subtract the algorithm of change in any paradigm from the fact that the paradigm itself sets the parameters of what that change is. Waking Down and Diamond Heart, for example, are great, but they've got assumptions about reality that are very different than identity, even though we share headlines. Uh, uh, very much so. So you've got to look at the metaphysics of a paradigm. And so if you say you hear about what identity is saying and some and you say to yourself, oh, I've done work like that. You're not getting what we're saying. And that's okay, too. We're not trying to sell you. But they're really honest to God, there really isn't isn't anything out there that that has the assumptive paradigmatic um, uh, structure that identity has that has no absolutes in it. There certainly and could be, but we haven't found it. We're still looking. We can't say definitively there isn't, yeah. but Joseph is just a maniac as I am. You're the, you're the one who's inherited it most. Your, your, your acuity at looking for contradictions equals mine. Um, so both if Joseph and I were maniacs about this. I'm, I started this and I was always looking for an out so I didn't have to bring a new bloody paradigm yeah, to the that world. Yeah, that would be great. You use my talents for lots of other ways. I could make a lot more money and find beauty, bounty, and meeting a lot easier than standing for an entire new um, paradigm for human consciousness. So I was always looking for the out. Come on, I've got to, I've got to find a dead end here. Because a funny thing about a contradiction, Joseph, and you know what I mean, if you can find one in a fractal, some downline, uh, way downline Dharma piece of, 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 of identity, you will find a contradiction in the assumptions, metaphysic yeah. way upstream. So we're always looking for clinically demonstrable contradictions anywhere in the in in the um, globe, inside globe of all directions of identity. Shit, we haven't it's, found. Speaking of uh, paradigmatic assumptions, I was just speaking to a, a new person that I met today on, on a Zoom. Um, and I forget what she said. There was a sort of casual mention of some psychological symptom. And she said something like, um, I can't remember. It was, you know, it could have been about anxiety or depression or something. And um, she said something like, well, you know, of course, there's not much I can do about that. And I was like, 
really where did you get the idea that there's not much you can do about that it was like there was this implied like of course you know all i can do is manage that i can't actually yes. heal that that was the paradigmatic assumption oh god yeah and that's like i taught this course once called paradigmatic analysis and what i tried to get across to people is every word people speak they're telling you what their paradigm is yes all yes. you got to do is know how to listen yes exactly and that's of course western medicine's psychology has the frame of you can't heal psychological problems you can only manage and compensate them but they won't explicitly say that no but no, that's no. where they're coming from <laughs> they, they can't deny it if they really are confronted with it oh and i have the perfect metaphor where the rubber meets the road on this if you do research on narcissism, uh, uh, you will find five, a, a half a dozen different versions from different traditions in humanism and psychology and uh, humanistic or uh, psychological philosophy on what and how narcissism expresses, how it shows up. And there's different kinds of it have different wrinkles in it. Some there's, dis there's dissociation for reality. Sometimes there's there's a um, smearing of reality uh, opinions. You kind of get lost in too many uh, different ver versions. At any rate, the net result, if you shake all that out, uh, the absolute uh, thing that they say, and this is absolute, there's no way to heal narcissism. You can't <laughs> be a narcissist. And that makes absolute sense from their point of view, because uh, if narcissists, if, whether the narcissism is deemed to come from genetical, inherited, um, phys physiological brain dysfunction or conditioning, and they're always arguing, um, uh, uh, what, what is that? Um, Nature versus nurture. Right, exactly, and and there's 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 differences of opinion in psycho in, in in psychology of whether it is nature or nurture about narcissism. But at any rate, it's not it's not healable, only manageable. And if you are with a narcissist, I read, heard something recently. If you're with a narcissist, you've either got to accept that that's never going to change or move on. And there's I've never seen anybody say. Look at why you're with the narcissist in the first place. <laughs> I never say it because you're. It's just implied, sine right. qua non, that yeah. if you're if there's a narcissist in your life, you're a victim, and poor you. And what are you going to do about it? I think narcissists are incredible teachers for for people like me who come from a place of not having enough self authority. That's why I've drawn narcissists to, in my life. Sure, sure, and and of course, the simplest way to address identities opinion on narcissism is is that um, it's simply the protector's eye has to overexert itself equal to the amount it feels insecure yeah it's 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 very simple and that emotive based protector can be healed of narcissism but that element is not included in standard psychological philosophy mm -hmm. uh, that there isn't a difference between um, an, an emotively healthy, there's there's no there's no metric for emotional maturity in any psychological paradigm. Only um, uh, uh, what is it? Um, uh, how pronounced um, their symptoms are, pretty much. How pronounced or the lack of the symptoms, yeah. right? Or what, what's the what's the acme that um, uh, Maslow uh, self actualization, mm -hmm. right? That's the best you can do, but that's not that to us uh, uh, is in not even the same universe as self-authentication. 
that is what is identity's uh, uh, goal. I don't even know what self-actualization is. Is that actually, it must be defined somewhere, right? Yeah, you can find some good ones, but where the rubber meets the road, just in all that I know about it, it's always defined, it's always definable as a lack of, or, uh, oh, you don't robbing, have any like negative symptoms. And... Right. You're not robbing the 7-Eleven. You're not uh, a Trump by tax cheat. Um, you're not you're not murdering someone because you don't like the way they look. When you have the miss, when you don't have those extra pathological expressions, forget what's going on inside. But if you don't have the expressions, you're self-actualized. See that hierarchy of needs. Right. So um, there's a little bit of upholstery in, in, in self-actualization uh, in Maslow's uh, model, but it's, it's really thin, thin soup um, relative to an identity's point of view. It's so, uh, the, the process, self, he, he described, Maslow described self-actualization as the process of becoming, quote, everything you are capable of becoming. Well, like, according to <laughs> according who to, or what and how do you know? According to what pet, what, uh, what what um what, what's the anatomy of who what you are yes what, what's the, the inner and the best version of yourself parentheses according to what paradigm that's defining the <laughs> yes. good and bad <laughs> yeah well a paradigm could say dressing up as a clown is is the highest expression of yourself because it summarizes all the absurdity of the human condition for yeah. example According to whose metric? Yeah, so was Hitler self-actualized because he was a great leader and unified Germany more intensely than it ever had been uh, unified? Like you know, right? And, and he and he himself never murdered anybody. That's right. So yeah. Well, so where where's the line? How do you adjudicate this stuff? This is the oh the insobriety of our metrical evaluational aspect of our consciousness is so. Um, low CQ, low consciousness quotient in this world. It makes it really hard to talk to people without making them think you're being elitist. We're just in sorrow about it in, in identity. We're not. We're not. We're not happy about it. Uh, no. This sobriety of metrical evaluative uh, um, means to adjudicate conflict between human beings in the inner and outer. So I hope we've given you at least a taste of what that's that incredibly important. As Joseph, you started it out. Uh, one of the most important metaphysical offerings of identity is this. Everything is real, but some things are more real than others. Without that, there's no traction in a lot of the ways the assumptions go to the next level of, ex of form and expression without that. Well, you know, so, it just hit me. I, I, I've got how this applies to race relationality on my mind a lot the last couple of days for some reason. The, the governing dynamic, well, let me first go back to relationality. Identity defines as two or more people negotiating reality. Yes. Mm -hmm. the, there's a governing dynamic underneath that, and that is that everything yes. is real and some things are realer than others. That's the yes. premise from which you negotiate reality with. Exactly. If you don't have that, then you're negotiating from positionality and absolutism. And right. uh, as a mutual uh, associate of ours from the path once said, uh, um, maybe you'll remember when he said it, it's an end. I'm right and you're wrong. They think they get around the either or that way, but all they do is dig themselves further in their yeah, It's an end. We can all, I, it's just, it's fine. You can think that you're wrong, but that's okay that you think that. Yeah. And, and maybe the last example we can move to close here is uh, 
the truths of a protector eye are real, but they're not as real as the truths of the soul eye. They can sometimes agree in content, but very differing degree in application and they are oh, grip. I, you know, there's, I just got an, another um, connection. The, when, when we unpack a trigger, once the person in front of you elicits um, a, a, a trigger reaction that is actually about a childhood wound, yeah. when, when we make the connection to that the you know, person just reminded you of how a parent treated you, that's mm -hmm. honoring that the reaction is true but what's yes. truer is that it's about truer. the parent, not about the person in front of you. Exactly. And that's how it can digest. What Joseph just described, that Joseph is so such a, a, a non-opaque clarity uh, that there's a metric of change that doesn't just get you another position on the mountain at the same altitude. Mm. Oh, look, now I see east, southeast, whereas before I was north, northwest. It takes you higher up the mountain at a different altitude or another way deeper into the truth of things by that metric uh, yeah, because that, if anything else you do with that trigger i have to think about it in real time here if you transcend it you're negativizing the trigger and derealizing it like this is yes. not real not important you're not right. honoring the realness of that it can't comes from your childhood if that's yes. truly what it is and you transcend right. it then that's less real um, yes any other kind of repression of it, like, you know, you reframe it in your mind, but ignore <laughs> that it's actually about your childhood and it really did happen to you. Like, right. you know, like we talk about, um, you know, playing victim, which is something that is very popular. We, what we do with victimhood is when someone is playing victim as an adult, we tie it back to how they were truly a victim as a yeah. child. That's yes. what's realer. Yeah, but, realer, yes. But mm -hmm. anything that wouldn't do that would create an either or, like yes. in Landmark, for example, well, you're not taking responsibility, so reframe <laughs> that and own that. Well, then that dismisses the real part of the victimhood that actually has to do with the person's childhood. Yes, yes. That's why no, processing triggers this way works. Oh, so beautifully said and linked up there, Joseph. And so many psychologies now have dead ended on in talk therapy bandwidths and say, can we are we ever going to stop being victims of our childhood? Mm -hmm. And the worst, the worst truth and service there is, because as soon as you adopt that framework, you close the door on ever finding the true reality of what happened in childhood that we were innocent victims of. Yeah. So uh, I hope this um, inspired some of you, or better yet, um, brought about a dozen questions out of it. Um, yeah. So if there's any sort of um, a metaphor or a situation you can think of that contradicts what we've said today, please uh, contact Joseph and um, bring the question or bring the confrontation of what you think we've missed there. How, how would we explain that? Because it seems like we can't or it contradicts itself. We're always open to that. Believe me, Joseph and I would be very satisfied in some ways to find a, a, a really For deep sure. uh, um, contradiction in identity. Yeah. Um, uh, well, maybe the person could be on as a guest. I was actually thinking in the last few days about uh, in addition to um, the conversations I have with you to occasionally invite guests who are in other paradigms and have a paradigmatic meta conversation about their paradigm. 
uh-huh. not not as a criticism, just as uh-huh. an elucidation of like so, because yeah. identity is the paradigmatic thinking of the paradigm is so um, powerful. It it illuminates um, sometimes with a little bit of a harsh light, but it certainly illuminates with uh, clarity, just like what other people are testing, because we don't hold identity as absolute truth. It's just what makes the most sense to us. And my yeah. favorite uh, on the list of top 10 <laughs> proposed slogans for identity, quote, oh. it seems to work. <laughs> yes. That's about as absolute as we can get. It seems That's to work. Can say. Yeah. It seems Touch to work. work. I think there's been about, I can I can roughly say, because I've been at it the longest uh, of anyone, uh, I would say there's been upwards of 1,000 to 1,300 to 1,300 people Mm-hmm. overall whose life trajectories were changed to the positive even if it involves some negative mm-hmm. <laughs> going through before identity in varying degrees um, a big change life change a rupture with the old way or even a one or two degree difference that over a period of years creates a, dis- a whole other destination than their life trajectory was on so it seems to work um, and that's all. I love that, Joseph. There's the most we can say about identity. Yeah, in a thousand years, if the human race still exists, like, might it take? Might it be a lot easier and take a tenth the time? By God, I hope so. Um, Me too, boy. But Me um, too. It just, well, just it seems to work, and everything else just doesn't make any sense to us. So, what are we going to do? Yeah. Not because we're not testing it, but because we we've done enough of the other work. We, Joseph and I. And a lot of people that get attracted to identity have spent a lifetime trying to find real change, uh, paradigmatic change, that that you actually can really change what you feel inside or what you are inside, not just It's a really powerful thing. I remember um, years ago, you know, when there'd be a a room full of 80 or 100 people Mm -hmm. and with the histories, with the, you know, hundreds of maybe even a thousand plus years of seeking that was in the room. Yes, yes. Almost all of the paradigms in human existence were covered. You know, maybe yes. not some indigenous stuff or, you know, some really weird. We, I don't think we attracted many ex-Scientologists, but, uh, no. <laughs> you know, people raised in all of the big religions, people who'd done uh, transcendental meditation for decades, um, right. Zen, uh, actual therapists. You know, it's like, you know. It, We've been tested yeah. for all the super, all in our picture of things. We can absorb all those and offer things that the people that gave us examples of to test our paradigm with. So I love that. I never thought of it that way. But yeah, yeah. The, they've been witness processorially uh, uh, over the years, many, many hundreds of them to uh, identity's point of view. So we do have some ground of knowing what we're talking about, even if we're always looking uh, for limits in our paradigm. I'm just laughing. Just and one more funny note uh, here before we go. I was talking to um, your wife, Bree, about uh, uh, some entertainment thing. Um, maybe it was about the victimhood thing. And she said, uh, speaking of slogans, the proposed slogan, she said, uh, uh, well, she said this sort of casually, and I'm proposing it as the slogan for entertainment. Quote, everyone laughs and nobody gets it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Bree. Oh, that woman, I tell you, I, sometimes my heart just, my heart of soul 
which includes my mind, just uh, and my body just wants to explode in love and respect for yeah. her. Because everyone laughs, but they don't know, it's but so, they don't get and the, the paradigm of each entertainment being an expression of me as its founder. That's somehow the story of my life, also. He's very entertaining, very interesting. I don't know if I really get it. But like, yeah, invite him to the party. Oh, thanks. <laughs> For sure. If you, I'm not as good at a party as Joseph is. I can tell you that. So please invite Joseph to your next party. You will have a hell of a ride. Yes, so. I do birthdays, bar mitzvahs, weddings, what have you. I'm available. Um, I will challenge the your party guest value systems right up to the level that we predefine in advance. If you want me to not alienate anyone, I can do that. I can keep it light, keep it entertaining. If you want me to alienate certain people and get them to leave the party, I can do that for a small extra fee. <laughs> now, here's I'm laughing and I get it. Here's an example because yeah. I know Joseph uh, uh, fairly well enough to know how good he is at all those things. <laughs> Especially alienating people. I've got a long track record of that, but I'm, I'm working on doing the opposite now and being far more relational. That you are, that you are. All right, so um, that leaves us, that completes today, number 12. Uh, um, and we've already been talking about relationality a little today, so that leads us to number 13 for next time, that the primary point of intimacy is to heal childhood wounds, which we already began talking about related to- What, women. it's not about sexual ecstasy fulfillment? What, it's oh, not? No, no, sorry. Oh, Does that oh, mean this paradigm's shit. not for you? <laughs> Oh, I don't want to listen to the next podcast then if it's not going to affirm that. <laughs> but, you know, uh, what I will say is uh, I'll try to put um, sex in the uh, in the title of the next episode because the, I believe the title was Sexualized Relationality and on yes. uh, for that podcast. And that, that one has more hits on YouTube than any <laughs> other episode because it has sex in it. So well, obviously we just need to have the word sex in every episode. Yes, uh, that will draw people's interest then, yes, of yeah. course. Maybe we should put the word sex in the title of the paradigm somehow, like sexy, sexy identity, I don't know. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, anything to sell it, right? Uh, yeah, like Tantra, it's, 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 it's a Tantra for the soul. How about that? Let's rename <laughs> it to that. Soulful Tantra, yeah. Soulful Tantra. Soulful Tantra, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Joseph, yeah. thanks so much for the opportunity to um, to care, to hold forth and explore and laugh and cry uh, yeah. as usual. With his podcast had all those elements. So. Always a pleasure, Stace. Thank you, and thank you all for listening. Until next time, bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Heart of Soul podcast. To learn more about Stace Barron and Identity, please visit identity.org. To learn more about Joseph Shapiro, visit clearandopen.com. Until next time, we wish you well on your journey.